You're now listening to episode 131 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli joined here with Charlie Ancinelli, real estate investor and angel investor at Rockstack Capital, where he and his team manage a portfolio of multifamily apartments, manufactured housing communities, and business commercial units across the United States. In today's episode, we discuss how Charlie went from full-blown entrepreneur to real estate investor, why he chose to focus on the mobile home park asset class, his tips for making investment decisions, angel investing, and of course, what strategies he uses to minimize his taxes. This episode was originally live-streamed to our Tax Smart Investor Group on Facebook about a week before its release here on the podcast. Join the Tax Smart Real Estate Investor Group by searching for us on Facebook or following the link in the show notes below to get early access and exclusive content, stay up to date on tax changes, and join in on conversations taking place with group members right now. We look forward to seeing you in the group, but for right now, we'll jump right into today's episode. All right, everybody. Welcome to the first ever Real Estate CPA Facebook live stream. We're joined here today with Charlie Ancinelli. He's a venture capitalist as well as a real estate investor, um, has his background in entrepreneurship. So we'll go ahead and, and dig into that in just a second. I want to thank everybody for joining us. If you're listening in on the podcast, uh, we will be streaming some podcasts to our Facebook live group going forward. So that's a tax smart uh, real estate investors. Uh, you can find that on Facebook simply by searching that, or uh, the link will be in the show notes. But without further ado, we're just going to go ahead and get started. Charlie, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show today and being the first Facebook Live podcast guest. Uh, would you be able to give the listeners a little information on your background? Sure. Thanks for having me and happy to be the uh, guinea pig here. Uh, yeah, a little bit about myself. Um, I guess uh, I sort of come from the tech startup world of the Bay Area. I kind of uh, dropped out of college, worked for like a tech startup, uh, you know, grew. I kind of was a part of that process from, you know, what was five people in a small office to, you know, 50 plus people and a few rounds of funding later and uh, really kind of got my college degree, made my master's there. From there, I, I went on to launch a couple startups of my own um, that had mild success. Some of them kind of got more into the headlines and, and, and the media, which isn't really, you know, real success. It's, uh, you know, so I uh, sort of did that for a while, sold some of those companies, paid back investors, sort of didn't want to do the sort of raising funds and raising capital thing anymore. And I ended up uh, launching a, a festival business with my parents. And so we sort of ran that for many years. And that was really a great experience. And we technically still run it, but that's clearly on hold right now in 2020 and possibly 2021. Uh, always wanted to get into real estate. That was really my goal since I was a young adult, you know, reading sort of books about investing in real estate at age 15 and on. But, you know, it takes some capital. I mean, it's other ways it doesn't take capital, but the way I wanted to build out, it did. Uh, you know, I wanted to use my own money and it was sort of my own retirement plan. And uh, yeah, I ended up, uh, you know, once I sort of had a nest egg, uh, instead of buying a home for my wife, my new wife and my, my new daughter at the time, uh, which everyone said I should do. 
I ended up uh, buying a 31 pad mobile home park in Tucson, Arizona. So I was crazy for dropping out of college. I was crazy for not buying a home and buying a mobile home park. But I think you have to be a little bit crazy in order to have a little bit of success in this world. Because as I, I say sometimes, conventional wisdom leads to a conventional life. And uh, it seems like we're always trying to escape a conventional life. So why do we keep listening to conventional wisdom? You have to really challenge things, carve your own path. And, and question things and be critical. So that's a little bit about my background. So so I did that, and, and now I, I have since then. And uh, you know, I purchased the first mobile home park in 2017. Since then, I now have nine uh, purchased nine mobile home parks, about 600 units in our industry. We call them paths, lots. And I, I have since raised capital, uh, but I typically you know lead each investment with my own capital. I'm usually the largest investor in each acquisition if I don't outright buy it myself. So that's kind of the path I'm on now. And now I'm a full-time real estate investor and operator. And my goal in 2021 is to become semi-retired because so far it's not been a passive experience. Very, very active. And I'm looking forward to getting some time back. That's the next challenge. It seems like an amazing journey. Before I go to the next question here, I do want to just say, you know, I agree 100% with your comment on, you know, uh, conventional wisdom leads to conventional results. And like they always say, if you do what everybody else does, you get what everybody else has. And if you're trying to escape that, you got to blaze your own path. So why mobile home parks? You know, there's so many different investment, uh, real estate asset classes rather out there. Multifamily is really popular right now. Self-storage, you always hear about that. Why mobile home parks? I get asked this question all the time. And the truth is there's probably like 20 answers to it, but I'll give some of the highlights. So one of the key reasons mobile home parks. And so when I was doing this, I think, you know, the, the journey for a lot of people who end up getting the mobile home park space is they end up, you know, I think most people start with like flipping a house or like, hey, this is kind of cool. And they buy a duplex and like, hey, this is kind of cool. There's some passive income here. And then they, they want to get into multifamily. And, you know, eventually people kind of peel back the layers and, and say, hey, what's going on with the mobile home park thing? Uh, and they end up landing in there. Well, I didn't. I just went straight into mobile home parks after I was doing my research. And, and sort of, you know, the idea was, okay, I want to get into real estate. Started looking at all the different asset classes out there. And when I started looking at mobile home parks, there was a few things, this is going back to 2015, really when I started this kind of research. And again, first one, 2017, two years of really just researching the real estate and, you know, uh, you know, due diligence into the space. You know, one of the biggest things that attracted mobile home parks was in tech, you know, we call this the blue ocean, uh, you know, which basically means like a lack of competition, a lack of consolidation. You know, as they say, riches are in the niches and there's sort of the long tail theory with that, right? With tech and startups. And so that's me, like, I was like, okay, this is interesting. It seems like a very, you know, fragmented, misunderstood asset class. And I know that there's always money, money to be made in the chaos. There's not a lot of money and opportunity to be made uh, unless you're a very big player in, you know, very organized industry. So that they've already been sort of, you know, the, the value add has been already, you know, sort of uh, maximized and realized that. So the idea that there was a lack of competition led to higher yields and, and better opportunities for cash on cash returns. That was a big one. Um, and then, of course, that's not enough, though. The other one was uh, demand, right? So uh, what's the demand for this product? Well, it's affordable housing. And, you know, if you look at the data, housing is, is just becoming more and more expensive every single year. And I don't think it's ever going to slow down. And the demand for affordable housing, in particular, uh, markets where housing prices, you know, is drastically uh, increasing. You know, that was like, okay, I, I want to be there. I want to be at the crosshairs of, you know, higher value home you know, markets where there's a real big gap in affordability. And so those two things, it was interesting. Now, then a lot of people sort of looked at it and, and me too, at the beginning, I was like, 
but don't mobile homes like aren't they like a depreciating asset like don't they go down in value every year and they do and so the goal isn't really to be a mobile home renter the goal is to be a glorified parking lot with utility structures and and you want to have you know the mobile home uh, tenants you know really own their mobile home uh, and really that's a that's a path for a win-win um, I never look to make any money off the mobile homes if I inherit them or buy them and bring them in. I always sell them back at a zero percent interest plan. My goal is to have long-term tenants that you know want to be a valued member of my communities, and they want to take care of their home. They want to feel like they have they have security and safety. And so, uh, so for a lot of those reasons, you know, I'm not dealing with like the leaky faucets or the toilets, things like that of that nature. Um, I was really attracted to the space and, uh, and I've just been kind of all in on it ever since. I, I will say one last thing too. Uh, I've kind of joked around that it's the Bitcoin of real estate before with my friends um, in the sense that, uh, you know, there's, there's a known quantity of mobile home parks and they're not making any more of them. In fact, it's decreasing each year. I mean, they are making more, but the amount that are, you know, redeveloped into other pieces of land versus like the amounts that are developed each year. And it's very, you know, cities have made it cost prohibitive to develop mobile home parks. You know, they can't outwardly discriminate against, you know, low-income people, but they certainly make a lot of ordinances that make it tough for low-income people to, to live in their, their neighborhoods. So because of that, it's, it's also a shrinking um, supply curve with a rising demand curve. Uh, and so for me, it's, it's almost been a no-brainer. And, and you got you got to love the supply and demand fundamentals there. You know, this is very, very strong for that asset class. And, you know, also the blue ocean, blue ocean strategy uh, that you brought up, a huge, huge strategy. Anybody who's not read the book, blue ocean strategy, you should go check that out. But, you know, so continuing down the line of mobile home parks, is there any specific, you know, tips or specific strategies you use when acquiring to make sure that you're getting in in a good position? What tips do you have if someone is looking to be an aspiring mobile home park investor? Yeah, uh, tips are do your due diligence. There's a lot of coursework out there now. It wasn't the case back in 2015 when I started sort of researching this space. There was some, but now there's there's an onslaught of really great podcasts and and literature and people who are sharing their knowledge in the space. So do your due diligence, you know, whether it's it's purchasing a mobile home park or starting a business or whatever it is in life. I warn people against two things. There's some people who are trigger happy and they're reckless. They're quick to pull the trigger on, on making decisions uh, without doing the proper due diligence. Uh, and, and they usually end up losing their shirt. And then there's people who on the other side of the coin you know, all they do is due diligence and research. And you'll see these people go and do the circuit at all these different real estate conventions. And it's like, when are you going to buy something? Uh, and I know some friends like this, and they probably don't even know that that's them, right? But it's it's like, you know, that you can over-research and, and sort of, I guess they call it, uh, phrase for the um, analysis paralysis. I don't even know if that's the right phrase. I think it's just that, you know, they, they doubt themselves. And so what I always tell people is, listen, in life, you're never going to be more than 80% sure in something. You know, as long as you can reach 80, do it. Reach 80 in your decision to buy something. Reach 80 in your decision to follow a path. Reach 80% you know, percent in your decision on making decisions And once you have it. And so that's, I think, rule number one. And then I think another tip I would give is just make sure, you know, you buy the right property, the right park at the right price in the right market. As long as you, um, you know, as it's an old phrase, right? I mean, you make your money the day you buy it. And I think that always holds true. I always want to be equity up the day I buy it. Uh, I never want to sort of be in a position where like, if I accomplish X, Y, and Z, then, you know, in two years, I'll be at a position where I feel like it's at that market value. And then in three years from then, I, I'll hit my plan and investors get return. I, I just, some people operate that way. 
Maybe they're smarter than me. I don't feel comfortable with that. So I feel like as long as I buy equity up and I know that come tomorrow, if something happens in life, I can sell it. And I'm at a, at a minimum going to you know, break even on this deal. Investors are going to break even on this deal. I'm going to break even on the deal. That's important to me. So those are just a few, few things. So joining a little bit late here, but I wanted to ask, you know, you, you just said that people get stuck in analysis paralysis. We, we see it with a lot of our clients. I fall victim to it as well, not only on the real estate side, but also on the business side with different expansion opportunities. So you said people get stuck in analysis paralysis, but then you also said they need to make sure that they're buying the right deal at the right price, the right location. Well, I think that that's kind of what causes the analysis paralysis. So how do you make sure that all of that checks out and you can make an objective decision and just go for it and remove the emotions. I mean, the analysis paralysis piece is, is emotional. So how do you objectively ensure that you are buying at the right price, the right location, and whatever the other thing was? <laughs> yeah, no, great questions. And so I think the way that you can accomplish that, uh, you know, is, as best as possible is to remove emotion, right? Because I remember, like, I, I was doubting myself of the entire process of my first global home park. I mean, to go from owning no real estate to now having like 30 tenants all of a sudden, 30 families, it was overwhelming. Now I look at a 30-space park and I'm like, that's a small park. I probably want to take a look at it. But to think that at the time, I was like, you know, oh my God, how am I going to do this? It was very, you know, I was doubting myself the whole time because we do. We, we constantly doubt. I doubt myself every day. I mean, there's, there's always a little voice here saying you're not good enough, right? You got to learn to, to silence that. And I think the way that you can get over analysis paralysis is having a checklist, right? Knowing what your checklist is, right? So if it's a checklist for the right market, what's that market look like? So, you know, for me, I mean, there's certain metrics I like to look at, you know, is the median income a certain, you know, median range compared to the average of the U.S.? Is, um, you know, what's the employment diversification like in that market? You know, median home price, is it over a certain, you know, price that I, I like to see? So I have a whole checklist for the market. I think that that helps sort of define that. And if, if that checklist, you know, is good or 80% good enough, then okay, move on to the next stage. I look at the deal. And then the deal, you know, I might look at things such as um, big key factors, you know, what's the utility structures like, is it private utilities, public utilities? Um, and I have a grading system, you know, it's not like formal, it's not an Excel sheet, but it's like, I just, I generally know the pros and cons. And then from there, then, you know, one of the great things that I wasn't really aware of in the beginning, but really made sense to me as, as I sort of went through the process about it, long part was the way you value these loan parks or you know any commercial real estate, multifamily, et cetera, is, uh, is you know, it's based on the NOI or based on the net operating income. And to me, that makes it a lot easier. I think for some people that scares them because they're looking at, you know, in a single family home or a duplex, they're looking at, you know, comparables in the neighborhood. But for me, it made more sense sort of having a business experience looking at, you know, the revenue and the expenses and sort of seeing what this is make at the end of the day. And I can value something based on that. I can negotiate based on that after I do due diligence. And so being able to sort of see, okay, you know, if the property's making $100,000 today and I'm going to buy it at a million dollars because it's making $100,000 a year. But I also know that here's the, the, uh, the game plan here. You know, the, the rents need to go up over the next three years to, to hit this amount. There's vacancies going to be filled and here's the cost to do that. The utilities aren't maybe being built back and we're going to figure out a way to install meters and build back utilities to the tenants for their usage and consumption. Maybe the manager isn't getting paid enough. Maybe they're getting paid too much. A lot of things that kind of go into this, but being able to sort of look at that as a game plan and, and being able to sort of create a business plan around that, it's not that complicated. So if I just say, okay, if I just do these things and follow this plan, then this should work out. 
that helps me too. I mean, you got to just so remove the emotion, right? Remove the emotion on the purchase, remove the emotion on the plan with the property, and then you can make a sound decision because you're always going to doubt yourself. And so you have to have the process and the data be the, the real driver. I think removing emotion is really tough. And I think for me, sometimes I get a little ego driven. <laughs> um, every once in a while, I'll look at a, now I'm not looking at mobile home parks, but maybe after this podcast, I will. Uh, so every once in a while, I underwrite a smaller multifamily property, like 20 to 50 units. Because uh, I've been looking for that for a number of years, right? So analysis paralysis for a number of years. Well, where I'm looking is a tertiary market called Hickory, North Carolina. That's where I've made a couple of investments and they turn out really nice from a cash flow perspective. I remember this, this one, it was a 29 unit apartment complex that had negative NOI, okay? And so, because I, I was doing the exact same thing that you were, I was like, well, I'll just, I'll negotiate off the NOI and we'll be good to go. What do you do when you see negative NOI? Because I'll tell you what I did and it didn't work. I, t- I told the broker that they should pay me to, to offload the property. And then Lenore Ryan College came in and bought it and made it dormitories. They paid like a million dollars for the property, which I thought was just, I was so mad when I saw all that. Because I was just like, this. Is I think they overpaid, even if you projected out rents, what they should be. But it was also just like, they were giving the seller so much credit for doing nothing. And that's, I think, the piece that really bothered me. So when you see the negative NOI, maybe you do or maybe you don't, if you do see negative NOI, I mean, what do you do at that point to continue the underwriting, to continue to at least have a spot to start negotiations? Yeah, I mean, it really depends. I mean, if you see negative NOI, it just, you know, at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself, is this something that, you know, I can easily fix and turn around? Um, how much capital is that going to require for me to do? And is that still at the end of the day an attractive opportunity for me? And if it's not, move on. I mean, there's just a ton of deals out there and the best deals are, Obviously, everyone talks about off-market, off-market, off-market. I bought things on-market. I use brokers. I love pocket listings. I don't want to spend my time making cold calls every day and dealing with lead lists. That's not how I want to live my life. So I do love pocket listings. Um, I do. I have purchased things online before in the marketplace. I've purchased things on Craigslist properties. And I've also done the driving for dollars where I've had success. But there's just, I think the point though, is like, there's just the, you just got to make sure you are, you have a range of deal flow, right? Don't get stuck down one range of deal flow. Don't just be on market. Don't just be off market. There's a lot of colors in between. But, you know, I mean, you can't negotiate with everybody. I mean, some people just want to hit their price and someone's willing to pay higher. So don't be pressured into a bad deal either. You know, sometimes the best deals are the deals you don't do. There's a real balance to all of this. You just got to have your own metrics and your own measurements and, and just stick to your own thesis. and. And if it's not working, maybe you do need to readjust your thesis and think about that, but do have a thesis, do have a criteria. And if you need to readjust it, that's fine. But, you know, but don't look at things as such like a deal by deal and, and think if I do this and if I do that, you know, I I think, um, you know, it sounds like someone else saw the value in that property and they probably had a game plan for it. And, and, um, you know, maybe you can learn from that and say, okay, what did they see? I didn't see. And, you know, watch them, you know, were they correct or, or were they wrong? I mean, you'll find it out. But yeah, you, you can't always negotiate the seller as long as there's somebody else out there willing to pay a higher price. You know, w- one of the things that off-market deals, I will say, which is very important, is, is that when you get an off-market deal, it's not cold, right? It's not like someone's worked up this deal with this person and they're looking to exit a certain price. I've purchased deals that are well under market value, still a win-win. But I got them off market. And when you can do that, you go directly to the seller. You get to know the seller, listen to the seller, have a conversation with the seller, see why they're selling it. What's the motivating factor? When did they buy it? What does the property mean to them? What kind of, you know, what's the story there? 
And sometimes, you know, you can just be a likable person they like, and they just want to say, I want Brandon to have this property because, you know, my parents built it and I ran it, but I'm tired of it. And, you know, but I like Brandon, I trust Brandon. And you know what? Like, yeah, they're not going to give it to you for free, but they maybe don't want to hear other offers at that point. They're going to, you're going to control that conversation. I've had that happen several times. And, and, and I love being friends with the sellers after I sell. And I love hearing their stories. I think, you know, there's just, you know, that, that's a fun people part of this business. And there's a lot of value if you can tap into that too. This has been an amazing conversation so far. You know, I think just on decision-making, this is something, um, I, I say this a lot, but I mean this, I'm gonna have to re-listen to this part of the podcast again, just to listen back to it. But this is, you know, it really has been amazing. And actually speaking of investment criteria and all of that, you're also an angel investor. And I was just wondering if you just tell us a little bit about angel investing and why you're an angel investor and maybe some of the benefits you see in, in being an angel investor. Yeah, so angel investor certainly comes second to real estate investor. But it's something, uh, you know, like real estate investing, I always wanted to do. And to me, that was sort of after I kind of established myself as a real estate investor and, and I had some of that positive cash flow that I could sort of feel comfortable and confident. I was, okay, now let me go ahead and jump back into the sort of the tech world a little bit. But there's no way I'm going to start a business again right now. I mean, I'm getting gray hairs and I'm only in my 30s. And, you know, so I, and I don't have the energy and the time to do that. But I do, I love backing the right horses that are out there looking to accomplish really, really big goals. You know, and, and so for me, that's a very exciting you know ticket to purchase. And and you know, angel investing, I'm very new to it. I'm still learning a lot about it. I have friends that are much more robust in knowledge and, and, and experience in that. And so a lot of times, I'll invest with them. You know, some of them uh, run funds, and and I'll, I'll back their funds or individual companies that they're currently backing. But sometimes, you know, people will reach out to me directly as well, and and I'll have those conversations, and I'll and I'll invest directly into, into young entrepreneurs. I just really love tapping into sort of that that energy, you know, of people who are you know, motivated to, to move the needle in the direction of the world. And so that, that gets me excited, you know, and I love if I can be a mentor or, you know, or have those calls with them and, and bounce ideas. It keeps me young, keeps me thinking different. And uh, that, that's kind of some of the, that, that drew me to that space. And it, it's something I, I will continue to, to do and, you know, make about five to 10 different investments a year. Well, what type of companies do you look to invest in and why? Yeah, you know, unlike real estate, where I have a clear thesis and a clear criteria, I haven't quite developed that entirely with my angel investing. Uh, and it's something I, I have spent time thinking about. You know, obviously, you know, the first thing people look for uh, in the space generally is found, they always say founder focused. And I always thought that was kind of a fluff phrase, but I, I really understand it now. I mean, you know, you really, I was talking to an angel friend of mine and it was interesting. I invested his angel deal, deals and he invested in my real estate deals. Uh, and we kind of share, you know, our, our expertise of domain with each other. But uh, he, he told me, you know, because he, he does a lot of these, you know, meetings and stuff, a lot of his companies, but he really, um, it's almost like dating. I mean, he, he really cares, you know, he'll have many different interviews and stuff, but he really wants to get to know the person, the entrepreneur behind the business. You know, is it someone that's going to quit when times get hard? Is it, you know, what's the story? Why are they there? How hungry are they? You know, how adept are they to sort of, you know, adverse thoughts? So being founder focused is probably my biggest criteria going forward. But also, I'm not in this angel investing for like marginal returns. I'm in this for like you know, the possibility of buying lotto tickets on things that can have big impact in the world and with huge, huge returns and, and big changes. So I look for things with, uh, you know, that maybe don't seem safe. I look for things, people who are, are trying to do something different that they're probably going to fit. But if they succeed, it's a, it's a huge home run for everybody. 
hundred percent. I always hear about venture capital. You're always looking for the home runs. You're going to get a few home runs and they're going to wash away all of the ones that, that go to zero or just like, you know, base hits or whatever the case is. What one question I had, I did take a look at your website prior to the podcast and I did see one of the investments you had made is in a company called Mainvest. That looks like an interesting platform. I think we were tossing around and I similar idea to that not too long ago. Like, oh, I wish there was a platform that did this. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about what Mainvest is and why you chose to invest in that specific opportunity? So that uh, that website, I actually need to update. Um, there's a lot more companies that I put on there too. Uh, and uh, you know, you're gonna have to forgive me on this, but I'm not super sharp with that particular investment. I kind of make a lot of them um, and spread them around. And some I'm much more uh, in tune with why I made it. And you know, you probably asked me during the time why I made that investment. I probably could have told you, but like, there's just so many you know different sort of companies now that. I've kind of forgotten as my attention has shifted, you know, mostly to real estate and then the startups that maybe I mentor. Got it. Got it. I could definitely see where that could happen. I could, I could 100% relate to that. So, you know, just for everybody who is listening, who are quick, the reason why Mainvest is the one that we pulled out was just because it's a platform that connects entrepreneurs with capital. It's almost like a crowd street or like a real estate crowdfunding platform. Just instead of having real estate opportunities, you just have small businesses who want to raise money to presumably expand their footprint or keep their business going, whatever the case may be. But I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, um, no, that's great. And so, okay, so so yeah, so, so one of the reasons was is I was I'm familiar with that space, you know, kind of coming from this, the festival world and sort of, you know, uh, in my network, I have an email list uh, and a vendor base of 10,000 small businesses around the Bay Area. And so at the time, and I still am looking for different sort of uh, uh, venture groups that I can tap into to my network as a resource to, to help them, help the, the vendor base that, that I have, uh, but also, you know, I wanted to sort of see how I can use it as a competitive advantage for certain ventures getting off the ground. And that was why I chose that investment. Nice. Nice. No, glad we would have, you know, come full circle on that one. You know, we are on the real estate CPA podcast here. So we do have to talk a little bit about taxes. Happens in every episode almost. I'm pretty sure. Conversation now. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, you're full time in real estate now. What are some strategies you use to minimize your tax liability? Yeah, well. Should I give you guys a plug? First, uh, talk to the real estate CPA guys. Uh, that's a great first step. But, you know, taxes are one of those things in the beginning of my life. I'm sure this is the same for everybody. You kind of want to avoid and run from and you're like, oh, I got to pay this bill, blah, blah. Well, like, I love taxes now. I love tax planning. I love tax planning being a part of my, like, my wealth strategy, my, uh, my decision making. Um, and so I, I think a lot of these, your list, these strategies your listeners, are, if they listen to any of your podcasts, they're familiar with these, uh, you know, bon- you know, the bonus depreciation and the cost irrigation studies being a real game changer, finding a way to become a real estate professional, whether it's you or your spouse, you can take full advantage of, of the losses created through a cost irrigation study and, and then therefore bonus depreciation. And I remember when I first started working with you guys, I was like, how can, now that I know about this, I was like, how can I take this? back to my previous tax years. And you're like, oh, I'm sorry, you just you can't do that. You can only take it going forward. And then boom, the pandemic hit 2020 and the CARES Act came out. Well, everyone was sort of looking at these stimulus checks, the public dollars, the real money, of course, is in all the other like hundreds or thousands of pages. I don't know. I, you guys read it. I didn't read it. Thank you for reading it. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the, the biggest benefits that was in there was you can now take your net operating loss, your NOL, take it back five years. And so I've really tried to maximize that in 2020 and 2019. And, and that was really 
it was nice to go back five years and get a big check from the IRS uh, and get all that money back. And so, look, I mean, you know, I was these discussions with friends and you can argue the merits or, or you know, the legitimacy of, of the effects of tax law and stuff. I don't really care to get into that. Like, I'm not a politician. I'm not an economist. I'm not having opinions. But at the end of the day, I think what it comes down to is even people who have these opinions, they're not choosing to pay extra taxes. There's something on their tax when they can always pay extra taxes if they want to. They never choose that. If they can get tax credits. They always look to do that. And I think as a, as a real estate investor, the way tax law is written is incredibly favorable to, towards real estate investing. And so, you know, it's been amazing. I'm now in a position where I legally don't pay any taxes each year. And I, I'm not only that, but I'm getting them back for the past five years. And I hope to keep that continuing as long as I can. And so, you know, that's sort of, you know, icing on the cake with being a real estate investor is you're going to get great returns. You're going to get long-term wealth. And if you do it right, it's going to be, you know, tax-free wealth. And, you know, mobile home parks in particular, those cost segregation studies about, you know, 60 to 75% of the entire purchase price can generally be bonus appreciable in, in year one. And so that's huge. Yeah. And so, so you mentioned the CARES Act allowing a net operating loss carryback. And for anybody that's listening, there's been confusion in the real estate space as to what a net operating loss is. So I want to explain that really quickly. If I generate a loss, a tax loss for my rental real estate or mobile home park, we're going to consider that rental real estate. If I generate a tax loss, it's not automatically a net operating loss because if the loss is passive, then I can't claim that against my other income. So a net operating loss, at least in the CARES Act context, is if I generate a tax loss for my rental real estate, and then I'm able to claim that tax loss against all of my other income, and I still have loss at the end of the day, that's a net operating loss. So how do you claim that tax loss from your rental real estate? Well, you have to recharacterize it from passive to non-passive, meaning that you have to, especially in the net operating loss context, you have to qualify as a real estate professional and you have to materially participate in your rental real estate activity. So we, we qualify as a real estate professional, we materially participate, we run the cost segregation study, we get this big tax loss. Because we qualify as a real estate professional and materially participate, we've moved the tax loss out of the passive bucket and into the non-passive bucket. Now we can offset W-2 income, business income, capital gain, interest, dividends, and in Charlie's case, we had more tax loss, non-passive tax loss, than we had non-passive income. That is a net operating loss. But just because I create a tax loss for my rental real estate doesn't automatically make it a net operating loss because if it was passive, the passive tax loss just gets suspended and it gets carried forward. So really important distinction to understand there that you do have to recharacterize the loss from passive to non-passive by qualifying as a real estate professional. And Charlie, I wanted to ask you, you kind of mentioned it there at the end. Do you remember offhand what percentage of the, the acquisition price you were able to, because mobile home parks are very different than multifamily properties when it comes to bonus depreciation and cost segregation studies. Do you remember what percentage of the purchase price that cost seg study showed that you could write off in that first year with 100% bonus? I think it averaged typically around 60% of the 60%. purchase price, which you know, is pretty incredible. If, if you consider the fact that you know if you buy uh, let's even you know just say a million dollars of property and six hundred thousand dollars of it, you can you know bonus depreciate in year one because again, a mobile home park, I think it's mobile home parks and golf courses are the two that you know you typically see over fifty percent of the uh, the purchase price is on that fifteen year below schedule. Yeah. Um, and go figure, golf courses are are, are listed in, 
you know, are favorable for this. But that, that's, that's a huge, huge benefit, a huge strategy for mobile home park investors. And, and the reason that that's the case is when, when you do a cost segregation study, the, the purpose of a cost segregation study is to, let's say I buy a building. Uh, the purpose of the cost seg study is to say, well, you bought the building for a million dollars, but that million dollars should technically be broken down into the various components that make the building up, like the the flooring, the roof, the windows, the HVAC system, the plumbing system, the electrical system, everything that makes up the building. So a cost seg study is the practice of saying, yeah, that you didn't just buy a million dollar building, you paid a million dollars for all the components that make up the building. So we're going to use a cost segregation study to value those various components. So you you basically look at the purchase price and then you reallocate value to the various components. But when you have a mobile home park or a golf course and gas stations even have like a special a special thing with them. But a mobile home park specifically, think about what a mobile home park is. It's a bunch of land and land improvements. It's a bunch of pads, concrete pads that the mobile homes sit on top of. So if you have a bunch of land improvements, that's all 15 year life and anything less than 20 years can be 100% bonus depreciated. So a cost seg study on a mobile home park is going to show a large percentage of the value being allocated to land improvements that you can then immediately expense. So that's how you get to the 60-70% range on the mobile home parks and golf courses around the same there. But but multifamily, you know, if I buy a multifamily asset, I've got the building and then I've got the the 30 units in the building, the 30 fridges, the 30 stoves, the 30 microwaves, the 30 flooring per unit or whatever. So a caustic study there has to allocate to all the different components, not just land improvements. Uh, you'll see about a 20 to 30% allocation to 100% bonus depreciation. If you buy multifamily properties, single family gets a little lower because there's only one set of personal property in a single family home versus 30 in a 30 unit building. The mobile home park space is, is great for cost seg, really good results. When you do a cost seg though, you take that loss that first year, it's awesome. And in the future, you're going to have taxable income because you've taken a lot of that depreciation. And, and I don't actually, <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot. I don't know if we've actually talked about this or you talked about this with our team yet. Do you plan on just continuing to acquire mobile home parks, doing the cost seg study to keep writing the income off or to keep a loss flowing through? Or what are your future plans? Yeah, my future plans are to keep talking to you guys and include you in the decision so I don't pay taxes. But no, I uh, I sort of have have two. Uh, I mean, again, you know, plans change. But as of right now, I sort of have two investment strategies. And you know, one is sort of a, a buy value out and flip, and that's going to be some assets that I that I, I you know probably don't do cost seg studies on, and some are going to be more legacy assets where I look to uh, you know to get the cost segs done and, and hold it at least for a significant period of time, um, and uh, and then hopefully the two will offset each other. That's a great strategy. That's what we recommend about our clients who are to go in the flipping space to, to go ahead and pursue that strategy because you both can play together. And something small that everybody know coming up the pike um, into or pipe, whatever, I don't know what that phrase is, but coming up in 2021 is that the excess business loss limitations will go back into effect, um, which means you can only take up to $500,000 if you're married of business losses against your non-business income. And, you know, if, if you're full-time in business all the time, that might not be a big issue for you. But if you are W-2 employed, that's something you want to speak to your tax advisor about to make sure you understand the implications and how it's going to impact your situation. You know, Charlie, you know, we went through a lot of different things today. Is there any final parting words, any uh, words of wisdom you want to leave with our audience before we go ahead and wrap up with the final few questions here? No, you know, um, at risk of making this sound like an infomercial towards the end, uh, I, I do just want to thank you and Brandon 
Uh, you know, 2020 was a pretty scary time uh, for a lot of people, but it was very scary for me. I mean, I, I had worked so hard to sort of build up what, you know, was kind of my, my all-in kingdom here of, of rental properties. And, you know, then this pandemic hit and, you know, I, my, my thesis is going into the home parks was that they're going to be recession resistant. I wasn't sure if they were going to be pandemic resistant. And it was a very scary time. Uh, and then, you know, the CARES Act came out. And, uh, and I just, you know, want to thank you and, and Brandon uh, for uh, you guys wasted no time. You communicated to all your clients and you, you held a big Zoom meeting. And I remember it uh, where, you know, your clients were invited to where we kind of went over everything together that you guys stayed up all night reading. And if you didn't know something very clearly, you stated this might be this, might be that, we'll keep you posted. But that just put me at such ease during that time in that process. Uh, and so, you know, thank you for that. Um, but uh, as far as uh, final words to, to the listeners, um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, if you ever have questions about home park investing, I'm, I'm happy to answer and, and, and help where I can. And uh, you can visit me uh, at rockstackcapital.com. Uh, you can click on office hours. Uh, there's a link there. Um, and you can email me, charlie. Uh, at rockstackcapital.com. I want to jump in here before Tom closes us out. And we, we really appreciate the kind words, Charlie. That was a lot to go through with the CARES Act and trying to understand the, uh, the different rules and programs that they were launching. And recently, like this week, we're, we're filming this third week of December, Congress just dropped a 5,593-page bill that we're going to read through during Christmas as we drink eggnog and bourbon. So I don't, we, we will try to get that done by the end of this year and hold probably another Zoom webinar um, if there's anything extremely exciting. But I did see the that meals are now 100% tax deductible, which is interesting. So what do they call it? The, the, like three martini law or something? Yeah, the three martini <laughs> law. Yeah, trying, trying to revitalize restaurants, I think. So it's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I kind of took away from that that initial thing too. They're just trying to you know give the restaurant industry a little boost, and why not do that by allowing you know businesses to expense 100 the meals? And one last thing before we wrap, I do just want to say that a that CARES Act webinar we did is on the podcast somewhere. It's episode 100 and something, I believe. I don't recall off the top of my head, but we can drop that in the show notes. Um, and do want to give Brandon credit because I'm pretty sure he did a little bit more work on, on that CARES Act thing than I did. But uh, yeah, so I just want to say that. And Charlie, you know, thanks again so much for coming on. Loved having you on the show. A lot of words of wisdom, a lot of things, a lot of good knowledge about investing drop today. And anybody listening, you know, should play this one back for sure. We're going to go ahead and drop Rockstack Capital into the show notes below for anybody who wants to learn more about Charlie. want to thank you again, Charlie, for coming on. Uh, wishing you and your family happy holidays. Thank you. You guys as well. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.